We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Well, today I'm so excited to welcome back a woman I enjoyed talking to about The Shining in the Bright Wall Dark Room episode. Elizabeth Cantwell is a poet and a high school teacher, the author of the chapbook Premonitions, as well as two full-length books of poetry, Nights I Let the Tiger Get You, and All the Emergency Type Structures. She is also an editor at Bright Wall where you can find her essays on films ranging from Jaws to Burn After Reading. As a high school teacher, she happily tricks students into learning through her courses on horror, creative nonfiction, and war and peace. Additionally, you can hear Elizabeth, along with her husband, writer Christopher Cantwell, happily obsessing over a wide range of topics on their new podcast, Spores, Molds, and Fungus. Elizabeth, it is so good to have you back. How are you doing and how's spring been treating you so far? Thanks, Jen. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, you know, the semester is over. Um, My son's school is wrapped up. We just returned his iPad and his textbooks today. So I was like, let's let's call it a wrap on the 2020 to 2021 school year. Yes. (laughs) Over. And I am looking forward to the summer and more time to read and write and think. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, when we were brainstorming ideas for this episode, we had fun discussing everything from our mutual love of Paul Schrader's work to the various ways you could dissect horror as a genre, and oddly enough, figured out a way to address both of those topics today. With your background teaching horror, I could think of no one better to tackle the genre with especially because while I enjoy a number of horror films, it's not a genre I'm particularly knowledgeable about. You came up with a really interesting theme for us to focus on today, sex, gender, and final girls in horror, and five diverse titles to go into as well with Black Christmas from 1974, 1980s Dress to Kill, Cat People from 82, Vampire's Kiss from 1989, and the newest offering, Mandy, from 2018. While we'll take a closer look at those films in a minute, and fair warning to listeners that we will undoubtedly be discussing spoilers throughout, what is it about the horror genre that you find so compelling, both as a film fan and a teacher educating others on the subject? 
You know, that's a really good question. I've thought a lot about it because, um, you know, horror is one of those things where you're either in or out on horror. (laughs) It seems like most people have decided one way or the other. That is, I I still try to convince people, you know, who say they don't like horror. I'm like, well, maybe you would if you just tried these movies, you know, in this order. Um, But I do think that one of the things that I love in movies and art in general is this sense of the absurd. And we talked about that a little bit when I, when I came and talked about the shining just briefly, Mm -hmm. um, how much I love sort of the absurdity and weirdness of that movie. And I do feel like the horror genre consistently provides you that sort of nonsensical break from reality in some way or another, Mm -hmm. um, that I love so much. And I also think like, I grew up without a lot of TV and movies. I um, I do have like a little bit of an imposter syndrome coming on your podcast because I've listened to so much of it and so many of the people you have on are these, you know, movie buffs who have spent their entire lives watching oh, movies. No. And I feel like, <laughs> I, well, I didn't even really start until like my mid twenties, right? So I'm so behind in terms of, there's so much stuff I know I haven't seen, but. That's okay. Um, hey, Schrader did that yeah. too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but I do feel like because movies were, it wasn't like a taboo in my house, but it was kind of like, we don't watch TV if we could do other things, right? Oh, gotcha. Um, okay. So I think that when I started watching stuff as an adult or a young adult, really, I was instantly drawn to sort of those things that I think my parents probably would have liked the least, you know, that sort of Of course, rebellious. yeah. <laughs> what is the thing that my parents would definitely not want me to watch? Yeah. Pulp fiction. Great. Here Mm -hmm. I go. (laughs) Um, So I think, (laughs) you know, there's a little bit of that. And, but I do think, I don't know, my, my poetry often is a little bit obsessed too, with sort of this darkness Mm -hmm. that hangs out there in the world and in ourselves. And, that exploration of that darkness is just something that's really interesting to me, how different people explore it visually, especially um, in the horror genre is so, so interesting to me. And rewatching these movies for today, I kept focusing on these visual moments in each of them that I do feel like there's, there's actually a lot of parallels in, in many of the movies. I agree with you. And I can see that too, being a poet, like these movies really cut to the emotional core and visually, you know, you're going to be inspired by that with the senses. So I can see how that would resonate as a poet. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also horror is so, I hesitate to say formulaic because I don't want to indicate that there's, but there's stuff a there. structure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a structure to a horror movie <laughs> and some horror movies play with that structure, right? Mm-hmm. Which is great. And you go, wow, this is new. I've never seen it done like this, but there is like a, almost like a mythical root to so much of this that you see play out over and over again. And so you get to like grab onto the variations with excitement and see old themes replayed. Um, You know, it's, it is almost like a, an epic literary. It is. Yeah. 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 You go on a journey, they're a roller coaster, but the, it's almost a weirdly comforting genre in that sense, because you know, these people have a problem and they're going to solve it. And just on that basic level, or they're not going to solve it in some cases, but they're going to try, they're going to do everything that, you know, is it within their power to solve it? 
so in a weird way, like when you're going through something, I remember seeing a shrink on TV talking about this and saying like, it's good to watch some of these movies, especially you can see with horror or thrillers because you're getting your mind off your problem. But at the same time, you're like subconscious is watching and figuring out and, and figuring what they're doing to solve their problem. And it's helping you work through it. And by the end, you mm -hmm. feel a catharsis. So you can see that with horror a little bit. It's not just all, you know, blood and gore. There's more going on. It touches to the um, the character's journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I mean, some some films definitely have more of a catharsis than others, right? Yes. And I do <laughs> that there's um, some of the movies we're going to talk about today, the endings are actually very unsettling. Very bleak, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I You're also like, love. Good point, Jen. Follow. No. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think you No, exactly. no, I was like, being funny. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, but it's true. It can go definitely either way. And we are going to touch on a few endings that are definitely bleak, but that's... Yes part of the genre too and it's another reason we love it because it does startle you and surprise you exactly and it takes you into an emotional place I do think yes. that you know there's there's a lot of we're going to talk today a lot about gender hopefully some about yeah. gender anyway because that's one of my interests in the horror genre is For how sure. gender is at play here um, but I do think that this question of like who you sympathize with when and how you're drawn into the world. Um, I mean, that's true of any number of genres, but in the horror genre, it's very visceral. It's a very visceral mm -hmm. genre, right? You've got blood, yes. you've got gore, you've got um, special effects, you've got color, like the color in these films is so fantastic, yes, right? Absolutely. Um, and so it's this very visceral connection um, that you start to feel either with the characters or with some kind of undercurrent in the movie um, that I think can be even stronger in horror than in than in certain other genres. Absolutely. Yes. So many of these do deal with gender and sexuality. And I can't wait to dive into that. Elizabeth sent me a really great essay on the topic that I will link to or hopefully give you the information of in this post when I put up the podcast that dealt with gender and horror and final girls. And it was really illuminating. So I want to thank you so much for that. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I do because I teach a class on it. I have a lot of like theoretical readings that I had to pull together, especially to get it um, to get the course like verified by my high school so that oh, they weren't yeah. like what are you doing are you just showing kids horror movies like, this is <laughs> you're gonna scar them so for had, life no <laughs> yeah I had to prove like no 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 there's all these theoretical readings on horror and you can get really academic with it and you can analyze yes. what's happening you know yeah I will say I'm sure we're gonna get into it later there was a part in this essay where it talked about the flip of the genders and how the yes. final girls are often the more masculine uh, women, so to speak, even their names and like Ripley, if you think about it, Laurie, we have a Jess in today's um, films. I also thought about Sydney and Scream, uh, yep. names that could apply to either gender. Whereas the killers are usually feminized in some way. And I found that really fascinating, the reading on that. So yeah, yeah it is just so people all over know. It's Carol J. Clover, yes. um, who's sort of like one of the preeminent, she sort of 
created this concept of the final girl. And one thing she also says, like in the preface to that book, her book is called Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And it's like a classic of the horror genre. And she talks in the preface about how this idea of the final girl has been in contemporary life kind of used as shorthand for like a strong female character. Mm-hmm. And in her preface, she's like, you know what? This is not just about feminism, right? It's yes. more complicated than that. It's more like... um murky than that it's not as easy as just saying like Ripley's a strong woman therefore she's more (laughs) therefore feminists right like it's not it's not a clear equation like that there's something kind of um stranger going on Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's more to it I found it to be really fascinating and I can't wait to read more from her and I was opening up so many tabs on my computer for this uh, episode that I completely, that tab fell off. So I'm so glad you <laughs> clarified exactly what we were talking about. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, first movie today is the inventive Canadian slasher that launched a thousand copycats and undoubtedly influenced such genre hits as Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Scream. Made on an estimated $620,000 budget, the 1974 horror classic Black Christmas was inspired by the urban legend The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, as well as a series of murders that took place in Montreal. Written by A. Roy Moore and produced and directed by Bob Clark, who years later would score a gigantic hit with A Christmas Story in 1983, Black Christmas stars Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder as sorority sisters who are plagued with obscene phone calls just before the winter holiday, picking off members of the large house one by one until John Saxon's police lieutenant works with Hussey to try to trace the calls. Even before they realize the extent of what's really going on, the film gives rise to the popular horror adage and revelation that, oh my God, the calls are coming from inside the house. An ensemble movie with some wit and spark by its supporting cast, particularly Margot Kidder. There is a feminist, still timely subplot where Hussey faces an unwanted pregnancy and has a fight with her boyfriend regarding her wish to have an abortion. I saw the film for the first time last fall and was so surprised by how fresh the movie still felt. So how about you? Did you first see this and what are your thoughts on Black Christmas? Um, I, first of all, I, I love this movie and I think it's, I think it's actually one of the scariest ones we're going to talk about today. This movie yes, really is scary. Yeah. Um, I first saw it a couple of years ago because I had started teaching my horror class and I was doing all this reading and I kept coming across, across Black Christmas in the books and essays I was reading. And it got to the point where I was like, okay, I've never seen this movie. Clearly it's important and I need to watch it. But in my head, you know, even from the things I was reading about it, it seemed to me like it was probably going to be okay. An early slasher, maybe a little campy, maybe yeah. not like you know a great film. And I remember that feeling Um, which I love that feeling when you start a movie and you know, within the first five minutes, you're watching something awesome. Like I remember starting (laughs) the movie immediately going, oh, holy shit, this is going to be good. And maybe it's going to actually scare me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's it's a fantastic movie. It's scary on a primal level too, because like who hasn't had horrible phone calls and a woman in a house alone? I mean, 
she has other women around her, but later on, basically, she doesn't know where some of them are. I mean, it really hits you on a really primal level, this film, and I love it. I think it's so brilliant. Uh, Margot Kidder, I thought, was the biggest surprise when I was watching the film because she's just so funny, and I don't yeah. really remember her work in especially of that nature like she was a little bit with the banter in Superman but I saw that so long ago that I had kind of forgotten and then last fall the Criterion channel put this in a collection along with Sisters with Margot Kidder and watching them back to back I just thought this is one fantastic actress yeah yeah she does great work in this movie and yes. Olivia Hussey does too I, I mean her performance um, not to skip to the end, but by the end, like I, I was rewatching it actually <laughs> earlier today and I got goosebumps again yes. even though I've seen it a couple times at that part where she's screaming in the house like, Barb, Bill, like where she's realizing, you know, that they're not, they're not there anymore. No. And your skin just crawls because she's inhabiting the fear of this woman so um intensely and it's such great casting too because yeah you see her this innocent from Romeo and Juliet right mm -hmm. she has that kind of that that Zeffirelli glow yeah <laughs> <carrying over here. laughs> she's kind of angelic uh, when you first see her you think oh yeah <laughs> like what is she yeah. doing in this basically but yeah you know she totally yeah. surprises you and the it's so great yeah, it's so scary, too, by the end, because she's wondering if it's her boyfriend and like what woman hasn't been there with an ex or something or some guy that maybe makes us uncomfortable and you're just a little scared. I mean, hopefully we don't stab him to death. But, you know, basically, um, yeah, you just feel it in your bones. I remember when I was reading about this movie, it said the reason Olivia Hussey did this or said yes, is she was very close with a psychic at the time hmm. and a psychic told her she was going to be in a film in Canada that made a lot of money, something like that. And then, so that convinced her, okay, I need to make this movie. And then in the interview, uh, Kidder was saying something like she was very close with the psychic. And at the time, the psychic told her she would be in love with Paul McCartney. So we were making fun of her for that. <laughs> so that part probably didn't come true, but at least the film we have. So that's good. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Bravo yeah, for no, that, that psychic. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, way to influence someone. Um, but yeah, that idea of it being so viscerally scary, I think, you know, you have that opening shot of the house, um, yes. which immediately, you know, like you said, this movie is so um, influential. I feel like that's, it's the Halloween house. It's, you know, yeah. a million other, like it's in the dark. It's yeah. 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 You see creepy. it. And the way the camera moves, I mean, I think wow. the direction in this is incredible. It really um, is. The camera is so creepy, even when it's not, you know, killer POV. The way the camera kind of floats through around the and through the house, it's very chilling. And so you instantly get the, the idea that this safe space is not safe, right? That, yeah. that the house is not, you know, going to be a place of refuge. And it's the, that great irony of it's Christmas time, right? And it's all yes. lit up with Christmas lights. Although the wreath on the door, you know, the lights on the wreath on the door are just bright red. Um, and you notice that yeah. a couple times when Olivia Hussey comes out of the door and she's got this red light on her face and it's mm -hmm. kind of creepy. Um, yeah. I'd put it up there with, you know, 
this and Eyes Wide Shut, I think, two of two great creepy Christmas movies. They are. That's a really good one. Did you ever see the film P2? No. Okay. Write that one down. That I okay. tell everybody to watch it. It's okay. It's not masterful on that level, but it is so good. It's about, uh, it takes place at Christmas. A woman gets trapped in her parking garage that she works in and the security guard prevents her from leaving. And it's Wes Bentley is the security guard. And she's got to figure out how to get out of there. It's, you know, it's freezing. It's New York. It's like Christmas time. So it's another kind of Christmas creepy one. I don't know. There's mm -hmm. something about cutting uh, the beauty and safety of Christmas and the nostalgia with danger that makes it really mm -hmm. interesting. Same thing with Eyes Wide Shut, where all of a sudden it's a little sinister. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in this movie, too, I was thinking a lot about the idea that Christmas has this whole sort of maternal aspect yes. to it, right? Like the mother Mary, the baby Jesus, like um, you're thinking there's so many pictures of, you know, Mary holding the baby. And we instantly have like that's the, the one of the interesting things about the way gender is played within horror so much is that so much it is sort of this question of the mother, right? Yes. And you get that from Psycho, you get that, you know, in a million movies, but yeah. right away on the phone, Margot Kidder, when she's talking to her mom on the phone in that early phone call, she's so angry and you get the sense of this really um, central break, you know, with her mother. And she says, I wrote it down. You're a real gold, gold plated whore mother. You know that? <laughs> and so we instantly get this not virginal mother, but whore mm -hmm. mother in the beginning. And then um, I think that, you know, flashing all the way forward to the end when, again, spoilers, obviously, but um, when Jess is cradling the dead Peter in her arms, it's a Pieta, right? It's Mary yeah. and Jesus. It's the it same. Um, and she's you know, pregnant. Image. And yeah, it's like, yeah, she's the pregnant. Virgin Mary that isn't. Yeah, exactly. All is not yeah, well. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's so many like interesting themes going on there. Yeah, we definitely don't have three wise men at the police department, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, I mean, John Saxon is great. I, when I watch it every yeah. time, he's like the one I can kind of identify with a little bit more. But um, yeah, just such a good movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that, um, you know, again, this the, the forward thinking nature of it, as you said, the fact that she is pregnant and that she she says... She being sorry, just to be clear, if you haven't seen the movie, Olivia Hussey's character, Jess, yeah. who's sort of the final girl mm -hmm. in, in this movie. She's the one who's going to try to defeat this killer that, again, yeah. as you said, is inside the house. Yeah. Um, she is very strong willed in this idea of she's pregnant and she doesn't want to have the baby. And mm -hmm. that's this rift between her and her boyfriend who says you will have the baby right yeah, i don't want to kill the baby long. yeah yeah you can't kill the baby there that phone call so, so much scary. of it is phone yeah. calls, right but it's so it's so frightening because you have this like co-identification mm -hmm. between the killer who's clearly deranged and i mean he's interesting i don't we can definitely talk more about him and then <laughs> the boyfriend and for a lot of the movie it does a really good job keeping you guessing like, wait, yeah. is, is her boyfriend the killer? Is it two different people? 
I know the first time I saw it, even up until the end, I was kind of wondering, right? Yeah. Like, well, hold on, maybe it it could be him, right? It could he could be the killer. You and, don't fully know, yeah. You don't. Think yeah, so, and but. he is. I mean, like he is a controlling asshole, and mm-hmm. he does have rage issues, and he. Yes wants to dictate her life. And I mean, he's not a good person, but mm-hmm. also that gets at that, you know, idea that so many women experience violence in their relationships, yeah. right. Or controlling mm-hmm. this in their relationships and that your boyfriend doesn't have to be a serial killer to no. be scary. Mm-hmm. Right. Peter is yeah. scary whether or not he's the killer. Exactly. No, that's a really good point. And I love how the ending of the film leaves leave some ambiguous questions about that. And I think if it had been made today, I know there was a remake. I actually did not see the remake, so I can't really, you know, um, shed any light on that. But I think if it had been made today, we would have a Black Christmas 2 coming out very soon and be like, the killer is back and, you know, Jess has to defeat him all over again. But I love how back then it was like, nope, this is a standalone film. It's a great one. And they just left it alone because... If it had been made like, gosh, when was Halloween? Four years later, then there was going to be sequels with Friday the 13th made in, I think, 1980 or 81. So yeah, just a few years later, they realized it was a business to turn slasher movies into franchises. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really glad it's just a standalone movie. I do think it makes it creepier. You know, there's no follow up, right? It's like, it's that, that's the movie. She's in the um, dark. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. She's in the house still. She's still in the yep. house and he's still in the house. He's still there. Um, <laughs> he's, and he, I mean, like, I don't know. What's your take, Jen, on, on his character? Cause I know I was reading a little bit about um, how purposeful the ambiguity behind the killer's motivation is, right? That there's a lot of different things mm-hmm. you can read into that character. Basically he's, He's making these threatening phone calls. I think one of the scariest parts of the movie is that he uses all these different voices on the yes. phone. And I think they used actually multiple people okay. um, in the film to, to provide those voices. And I think there's also like a different guy who makes the shadows on the walls. Like there's mold, there is a multitude of people who portray Billy either okay. voice wise or physically. Um, and it's that question of the, the, it's almost like, the demonic possession or like, you know, he has all of these things inside of him, all of these people inside him, all of these voices inside him and he can't control it. Right. And he's killing, but you can tell he doesn't want to be killing because he calls her after every killing and he feels upset seemingly. And there's all this ambiguous, like I, I have an idea in my head of what the backstory is. And I'm sure everybody who watches it conjures up their own understanding of that character. Yeah, it is interesting. It's kind of, you, you wonder about the old horror standby of multiple personalities or something like a Norman Bates where, you know, there's like the one side who's the innocent and then the, the dominant side, which we're going to get to later with Dress to Kill, which is done in a kind of unusual way. But yeah, it is, I don't know, it's hard to tell with Billy. I do love that the voices are different, the shadows are different. That kind of reminds me of Zodiac when they use different actors to portray the killer at different times and used a blend of their voices, except in one scene and one line, they did use 
um, John Carroll Lynch's voice specifically for one line. The rest of all of the Zodiac's lines are all blurred with a combination of all the actors who portrayed him. So there is kind of that great thing of, you know, also when you're on the phone in this, I mean, your point of view along with the camera, you're with Jess. So you think everything she's hearing is what we're hearing but also shadows can play, you know, your mind plays tricks on you. So I like that aspect. I don't know. There's a lot with Billy. He has a lot of anger towards women, of course. Um, but then there's that side of him that feels sad, like a little boy almost. It's eerie. What is what is your take on it? Well, I do think if we're thinking about this question of the killer being feminized, which is definitely something that, you know, is present in a lot of these films. Yeah, he He does seem to have this sort of, yeah, childlike, almost feminine, like when he, so the first kill he makes, which I think is a very scary kill, he kills this. Oh my God, it's there. horrifying. Yes. It's very scary. It, mm -hmm. it, it's it's one of those things where it shows you how good the direction is, because even though you know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. As soon as she goes up into the bedroom, you're like, you just okay, don't know when. Yeah. The first one to fall. I'm pretty sure she's dead, right? Yeah. But um, he's hiding in the closet and Again, it's that like um, almost cliche, you know, when you're a kid, I know like I have two young kids and often one of them will say, can you please close the closet door oh, before yeah. we go to sleep, mm -hmm. right? They just want the door closed because there's that primal like what's in the closet. Yeah. Um, and he is in the closet. He is there. And you see her from his perspective as he sort of wraps the dry cleaning plastic around her head. And it's just so scary. But yeah. Um, he then proceeds to take her up to the attic and like put her in this rocking chair where she stays for the whole film. And he periodically like rocks her and kind of sings lullabies to her almost like oh a young God. girl would do yeah. with a doll. Yeah. So there's that weird. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very disturbed It is <laughs> in, in a way that's not normal. No, you almost wonder now, now that you talked about it and I started thinking about it, is he somehow related to Miss Mac, the woman in the sorority house? Is it a son? Was she in a situation like Olivia Hussey's? And there's all these questions. We have no idea. And I like that it respects the audience enough not to like tell you, have somebody like a police officer or an FBI profiler walk in and like give you the whole spiel on who this guy is and what's wrong with him. Because, yeah, it makes it far, far more chilling. I did, like you, I haven't seen the remake, but I did read a little bit about it. And I okay. think they do, it seems like they do explain, they do that thing where I guess they explain a backstory for Billy in the remake. Oh. Um, which I, again, I, I like that we don't have one here. Yeah. It, there's this question of who Agnes is. He keeps talking about Agnes. And so, yeah, it's like, well, it's Agnes, Agnes, another yeah. guy here personality is she like a sister that you maybe killed there's like some yeah. like was she a baby um or are, is he just because sometimes he's just repeating back what he's heard in the house right so yes, there's is. always this question of like are is he an echo is he a mirror or is this something from inside right um mm -hmm. which isn't that always the fear too in horror movies am I going to see myself reflected back 
right? Or is Very there just something outside of myself that's scary? And I think for Jess, that moment when she's on the phone with him and he says like um, that line about, it's like removing removing a wart or whatever, which he, is a repetition of what her boyfriend has Had said to her said. about abortion. Yep. Mm-hmm. And she kind of freaks out. And I feel like, yes, she freaks out because there's indication that somehow this guy was listening to her. But also I do think there's that moment of like, am I the monster? Right. Yeah. Am I the monster? Because she is thinking about, I guess, in Peter's words, killing the baby. Right. Which of mm-hmm. course we're not going to get into an abortion no. debate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but there is that sort of moral question hanging over her head in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think her, her question and she is a killer at the end of the movie yeah she, she kills, kills Peter yep and I mean like fuck Peter I'm glad he's dead yeah but... <laughs> nobody's gonna miss but... Peter no I'm just kidding <laughs> right but yeah. but she is but she is a monster yeah. in some ways right she does kill him I know what you were saying about your kids needing the closet door shut and stuff I am 40 years old I actually if I'm watching something scary I will shut doors in the house if it's like late at night I will kind of do the same thing just to you know because you can't look around behind you I've my chair is in the middle of the room it's like somebody could come yeah so I do that same protective thing and I was thinking about that with your kids and there is something about is the monster already in the house or like the calls are coming from inside the house another thing I love about this movie is how right it gets authority figures not believing women Like, um, you know, the dad telling, you know, my daughter is missing. Oh, she's probably just shacked up with her boyfriend or whatever. And just, you know, making assumptions about women. We know, of course, she's dead. Uh, It takes the boyfriend then and friends to like go down and yell at these guys. And then it takes another little girl being missing in the area. But it is interesting how right it got that in the 70s. I thought that was clever. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the idea that these are sorority girls. So they're dismissed because it's like, oh, they're probably with their boyfriends. They're partying, they're drinking. Right. This question of like, if something's wrong, they deserved it or it's their fault. They they put themselves in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I do think even Claire's dad, I mean, he's an authority figure, but it's another interesting moment of, of gender stuff there because he's so ineffective as a man. He is. And he's like, wandering around and then he stays in the house and like he says at one point like I just wish I knew what to do and it's like well do something for your kid yeah (laughs) do something and they never find her and that's another thing that's so upsetting oh my god she's right there yeah dead body is there the last shot you know we pull out from it and um it's and you're like, why didn't they search the attic? Come on, guys. There's an yeah. attic in the house. Look in the it. The first place um, you look, the attic and then the basement. Come on. <laughs> Horror exactly. well, No. After I saw this movie, I became terrified of, of our attic in our oh, house. Oh, I bet. I, yeah. Oof. Like, I remember the first time I watched it, I then we have to walk. It's the attic is in the hallway outside our bedroom mm-hmm. door. I was walking under it and I remember looking up and being like, oh, yeah, never Billy is up there. Up there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Oh. And of course, the house is always a metaphorical person anyway, right? House mm-hmm. is body, you know, is a common like Freudian. Oh, yeah, very true. Ego, super ego, ego id, right? Is in the mm-hmm. basement, right? So you've always got that terror in the basement. But here the terror is in the attic. 
right? Yeah. Um, which reminds it's me again you, a little bit. Basically, of there's that idea. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That she mm-hmm. that that again, the call is coming from inside the house can metaphorically be like You're, I myself am yeah. going to be scared. Yeah. Um, Such a good film. Is there anything else you want to add about this one before we go on? Mm. I mean, I do think it's interesting too that Peter's a musician, that sort of stereotype of the like unhinged artist. Um, yeah, he kills, he quote unquote kills his piano. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yep. I would just say, you know, if you haven't seen Black Christmas, we spoiled it for you, but you yeah. should go watch it. <laughs> watch it anyway. You will love it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, next up, we have a film I've seen multiple times. And one that par for director Brian De Palma, I still find myself watching even when it occasionally goes wrong. Let's just say that unlike Black Christmas, this one definitely shows its age regarding sex and gender. But at the same time, it really tries to do something bold in its depiction in a mainstream film from 1980, heavily inspired by the work of Alfred Hitchcock, most notably Psycho and longtime De Palma favorite Vertigo. This film, which he wrote and directed, stars Michael Caine, his then-wife Nancy Allen, Angie Dickinson, Keith Gordon, and Dennis Franz. Initially following Dickinson's bored housewife as she goes about her day, we accompany her first to her therapist, Michael Caine's office, and then to the museum where she encounters a flirtatious, handsome stranger, and in a wordless extended sequence, allows herself to be picked up and then seduced by this man who then takes her back to his place for a tryst. Murdered in the elevator in a shocking scene. That's another De Palma signature, hello untouchables. But in this case, it is by a blonde woman wearing sunglasses and holding a straight edged razor. The film then leaves their point of view in favor of a witness. We start to follow a hooker played by Nancy Allen, who teams up with Dickinson's son, Keith Gordon, to figure out which one of Kane's patients might have followed and killed his mother. From killing off first our main character to the the revelation that the murderer is the struggling cross-dressing trans character played by Michael Kane, who we realize seems to have a split personality. The Hitchcock illusions are everywhere. Very stylish with its use of split diopters, There's 20 here, of course, and split screens to link characters. It perhaps drops a pretty big clue about Kane roughly 40 or so minutes in through its use of split screen that I found really fascinating. But it's a film that I discover something new in every time I watch. So what do you think of Dress to Kill? I mean, look, I love De Palma, too. He's um, such an interesting director. And um, I think that... (laughs) just to preempt like the question of the fact that yes, the killer is this sort of what I think at the time was a sort of understanding of a trans character. I think that I I do think though, that it's clear in the film that the reason the character is evil is not because they're trans, right? That that's not the evil at stake. The evil has something to do with more with repression, right? Mm -hmm. Or the inability to be yourself, I guess you could say. And again, it is a very flawed understanding of that in some ways, but I do think it still works if you think about it theoretically mm-hmm. um, and not literally, right? That this isn't a literal yeah. question of what happened, like how a transgender person feels, right? And of course, there are a lot of 
lines in the movie that now you could take issue with like, oh, he's oh, a girl man, yeah. a man's body or whatever. And of course they misgender the character, the character. Yeah. The character to he, as he or, um, but I do think that it's, it works still conceptually mm-hmm. rather than literally, right? That this Excellent question point. of yeah. what's trapped inside is still very visceral. Um, and, you know, I, I do think too, there's an interesting scene at the end where Nancy Allen, the prostitute um, character is talking to the teenage son and they're just discussing transgender operations very frankly yeah. and very positively, like in a very sex positive way. So mm-hmm. I do think that's an indication that the film is in no way like anti-trans. No. Right? Yeah. That there's a very affirming like, yeah, this is how this person feels. And if you want to, you can go get an operation and it makes you feel great. And you see in that scene, again, with the diopters, the, the old, old woman kind yes, of like, Oh my God, right? what are you talking about? Yeah. What's happening? Which is yes. kind of an indication that, Oh, an older generation might not understand. The world this. is changing. Yes. Yes. That <laughs> yeah. said, aside, like, Putting all that out there. Yeah. (laughs) Putting all that out there. I think that the way that the film is made, again, like visually is fantastic. Stunning. You've got all those doubles, all those parallels, the sort of dream versus reality ending, which is, I know, kind of a De Palma staple, right? I mean, it's basically the same ending as Carrie, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. At first the first time I saw it, I thought, was that just all in her head? Is she really the mom? And I love that it makes you question just everything you've seen, which is very De Palma. Yeah. Yes. Um, And I also think it pulls that great trick of so many of these, these kind of horror films where you have what you think is a central female character who is then killed off. Right. I mean, again, it's the same as psycho, right. Where you're following Mm -hmm. Janet Lee and then she dies, but yeah. um, yeah following Angie Dickinson and then she's killed and there's that great perspective switch where you switch your you switch the perspective of the film through the mirror in the elevator right where we're in suddenly or Angie Dickinson's perspective and then we bounce off the mirror and now all of a sudden we realize oh no I'm Nancy Allen watching this happen right now I'm gonna inhabit Nancy Allen for the rest of the film sort of I Um, know it's so great. It's like, nope, that was her. Now you have to pay attention. Kind of like in the middle of Vertigo, which is the movie. There was an old joke that Alan Rudolph said, which is basically he's been making the same movie his entire career. And mm-hmm. De Palma has essentially done that with Vertigo, but he just does it in an interesting, unusual way. Like every time, not every movie, mm-hmm. you can't really say Untouchables or Carlito's way, but there are sure. little aspects of Hitchcock and Vertigo tricks that he puts in all of them. But the same thing, you know, we kill off uh, Kim Novak, spoiling Vertigo for everyone, uh, the first Kim Novak, you know, like midway through, and then we follow the next Kim Novak. So it's kind of like a flip of her or the Nancy Allen version of Kim Novak. So I, I loved that too. It's like, hey, if it keeps inspiring them, keep watching Vertigo, Brian, and make these movies. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I, I am a sucker for a filmmaker who who 
keeps doing the same thing. I mean, yeah. when we get into Trader, right? Like I I love all of those Trader movies that all end in the same way. You're like, yes, here we are again at the <laughs> frame, you know, behind yep. bars. Like, yeah. I'm so happy we did it again. Um, I know. But I do- yeah, the Brisson <laughs> thing he's been doing. Yes. <laughs> yes, his whole career. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think that um, this question of perspective for Dress to Kill is so interesting because even in that opening scene, right? Um, we open in a dream, right? We open and we yeah. think we're in reality. And again, like another classic De Palma shot is like a woman caressing herself in yes. the shower, which is <laughs> yeah. every De Palma film. But yes. <laughs> um, we think like, oh, okay, I guess this is what's happening. Like there's the wife, she's watching her husband shave that razor, right? We've got that razor right there in the first opening moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's kind of like turned on or whatever. And then it very quickly becomes clear, like, oh, hold on. This is like a dream Mm -hmm. slash rape fantasy slash like she's attracted to danger. Actually having sex with her while she's asleep and she hates it, which she later reveals to the therapist. So there's all of these sort of bottled up repressed um, questions about sex, danger, fear, and, Mm -hmm. and communication, I think in those opening minutes. Yeah. And what's interesting is when she follows in that wordless sequence, which comes right out of Virgo in the museum and follows this man out to his car, they don't even really exchange a word. Uh, before he pulls her in the car, there's an old Hitchcock quote about um, when he was talking about the difference between, again, I don't agree with this, this was Hitchcock, um, the difference between his brunette heroines and his blonde heroines, as he was saying, his brunettes were Ingrid Bergman, they were the smart ones. He said, but the blondes, you never know what they would do in the back of a cab. And that's a famous Mm -hmm. uh, Hitchcock quote. And, you know, the the sex scene begins in the back of a cab in this one. And I thought that was a little crazy. But, yeah, she never really gives a verbal consent. I mean, she's into it. We can tell. But there is a question of consent through the movie. She's very attracted to danger. And, you know, you have then Nancy Allen, who is um, kind of, we're assuming, like a higher end prostitute, but a prostitute. And she's very clear with men. And so you start comparing the two characters and which ones can know themselves and can voice um, their own fears and desires. And yeah, there's, and then that, you know, also kind of pays off with the Michael Caine character of being unable to do that, or there's probably a multiple personality thing going on or a split personality. So yeah, it raises a lot of interesting questions about um, sex control and communication, exactly like what you said. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting too, because it's like the classic trope of this, the sexually transgressive woman is killed. Right. And I love that. (laughs) I mean, I do think it's, I kind of laughed, um, watching it this time when, you know, when she's, she's in the apartment of this, you know, stranger essentially that she's gone home with from the museum Mm -hmm. She opens his desk drawer to like write him a oh note. Oh my god! Yeah, the thing that says like you have a venereal disease. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so ridiculous. And yeah, it's like it's right there. Yeah, it's also so insane because it's the punishment. Like that, she's doubly punished. It's like not only yep. do you have a venereal disease, I will also now kill you. <laughs> it is, um, and 
yeah. it was set in 1980 and it was kind of, you know, watching it uh, as an adult growing up in the era of like AIDS and safe sex and conversations about that. I was, that was really unsettling. The first time I saw this as a teenager and I thought, when did this come out? And like, oh my God. And yeah, so you're just completely devastated with her. And then she gets in the elevator and then she's like killed on top of it. And it's, yeah, a hat yeah, on and a hat, basically. Yeah. It's like she's forgotten her wedding ring, right? So she has yes. to get back. Like she yeah. would have been fine. She got in the elevator, but she, oh, she forgot her diamond. So she has to get back in and go back to the yeah. to the apartment. And that's what that's what kills her, right? Is that I know that, that kills you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, never forget your ring when you're coming back from having an affair. That's the moral of this story. <laughs> you know what else is great? You saying that about forgetting something. Basically, she reaches in the drawer, she grabs a sheet of paper, starts a note, and then changes her mind and goes back in for another piece of... Stop second-guessing yourself is the moral of that story. Don't forget your ring. Stop second-guessing yourself. You're going to be fine. No. Yeah, you're yeah. right. It's interesting because in a way she does, I'm I'm thinking now, she really does share something with Michael Caine's character, which is this inability to voice her own needs and desires, yes. uh-huh. right? And this... this lack of knowledge of herself, which of course, you know, Michael Caine's character, he's the psychiatrist, but who's also got this, you know, female personality trapped inside of him in the movie's language, right? Bobby, Mm -hmm. again, an interesting, like, single gender name there. Um, Bobby. Oh, very good. Yeah. 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 Um, But he also can't admit to himself what he wants um, or what he needs, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that, it's that that drives the murderous rage, not the fact that he has gender confusion or is working through mm-hmm. his own gender identity, right? If you want to, if you want to yeah. think about him that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. He can't voice it himself. And I also really love the idea of, I mean, he's kind of a secondary character. Part of me wishes he would have played a bigger role, but I love Keith Gordon's character as the son is going to feel guilt because he didn't go with his mom to the museum. And uh, then she dies and he decides he's going to play detective. And there's a lot of great split diopters of him, like timing outside um, Michael Caine's office when patients leave and, and you see everything in focus and it's so good. And I love his character. I kind of wish that more would have been done with him, but you know, Nancy Allen is great. I know she, crazily enough, got nominated for both a Golden Globe that year and also a Razzie. So that was kind of strange, but, you know, that happens. So, yeah, I thought she was really good. And I love the flip from Angie Dickinson, who's the bigger quote unquote name, who I'm sure after Police Woman, the series, like people went in like, it's Nancy or it's Angie Dickinson. Then wait, it's Nancy Allen now. So that was a good flip there. Yeah, and I do think going back to the that character of the teenage boy, um, if we think go back, going back all the way back to Carol J. Clover, she talks mm-hmm. a lot about how like the teenage boy is sort of the most common member of an audience at a horror film, right? And True. so many yeah. films are kind of geared towards teenage boys. And that the reason some of these horror films are so revolutionary is that they ask a teenage boy to, for the first time in their lives, take this empathetic perspective and inhabit the pain of a woman, right? Yeah, identify. there's no one else on screen to identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think there's an interesting way in which those characters in Dress to Kill are playing that out where this teenage boy is forced to kind of 
join forces with this sexually active woman in a platonic way. Oh, yeah. right? Where they don't he, make it creepy or anything, which although some I filmmakers like, would. The end shot, though, I'm always like, are they? It's like, a little, yeah. I don't know. But um, for the majority of the movie, anyway, it's very yeah. clearly a platonic <laughs> relationship um, and this very interesting fusion, right, of this teenage boy's perspective. And he brings the tech and she brings the body, right? Yes. So that's kind of almost like a Cronenberg, prefiguring Cronenberg, like, yeah, um, very 80s yeah. <laughs> divide. But um, it's like they need to work together to solve mm. this, right? She can't do it alone, um, which is interesting. No, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, when teenage boys go and see these, they're the spectators. So Keith Gordon has to kind of step back. It makes sense in a way. And and he's even looking through a camera. Yes. Right. Yeah. Very rear window all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And through binoculars. Um, Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And exactly like um, they have to identify with a teenage girl that goes back to Schrader once said, like, you know, if you don't give your uh, audience like a traditional hero, they will have to identify with whoever you put in front of them. And of course, I mean, these women are heroic in horror movies, but it's really cool that it almost tricks them into, you know, they go in thinking they're going to just enjoy watching blood and gore. And nope, they have to um, go and root for Nev Campbell to like save the day and scream. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I think, I mean, this is getting a little off topic, but I think that's one reason why Get Out is so successful and interesting is because it asks Very true. Yeah. to identify with a Black character, right? Because you can't, you can't identify with any of the white characters in that movie unless you're a big yeah. problem. I know. <laughs> you know and like, what's so revolutionary. Yes. Character. What's so revolutionary about it and why I loved Get Out so much is you were like for 70% of the movie, I will say when I watched this with a friend, they got it right away. But like for me, mm-hmm. for 70% of the movie, I'm like, well, Allison Williams is fine. And then when, you know, I can't give you the keys, babe, or whatever that line is, you're like, oh my God. And like, I hate all these white people and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I think back to dress to kill. Oh, there was one other, there was something you said that made me think of something and now I'm forgetting it. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Let me think. Oh, no. The teenage boy, there's also the question of the mom. His mom is killed, right? Yes. And, and it's that lack of a mom and then kind of like joining forces with this woman. And mm-hmm. you do kind of wonder, like, is this kid going to have a mom complex? for the Oedipal, yes. Which usually <laughs> in horror movies, the dudes with the Oedipal, they're the killers. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. I know. Yeah. Uh, the palm is flipping like, the script. Yep. <laughs> I also love, I love that Michael Caine in her, so, so that ending sequence, if you, if you haven't seen the movie, there's this extended end dream sequence that is shot so beautifully and weirdly Mm -hmm. with that um, overhead split diopter, which is just so cool. And I do think, I mean, maybe this is me being theoretical, but I feel like I know De Palma uses diopters all the time, but I also think that part of the reason it works so well in this movie is because you've got this question of the binary system, right? Yep, the binary gender mm-hmm. that is not working for this one character, right? That he feels split in this way, right? And that yeah. split screen is that is representation perfect. of this yep. split, this split in the character's gender. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, it's like he, I love that he puts uses- on the nurse's shoes. Oh, it's so oh, creepy. So good. Yeah. And he's always using, I mean, some of the diopters are just, oh, it looks cool. But I love how exactly with what you said, with the split screen, there's a reason he's using these cinematic tools that are at his disposal. And I think that is something that's missing. Sometimes today, like things are overcut or whatever, just to try to look cool. But there's a reason that he's doing it for the most part. Some of it is a little bit of show, showing off a little bit like, hey, look, you know, no hands, that kind of thing. But in this film, yeah, there's a reason. And I love that. That was a really great point. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add on Drustic Hill? Mm, I do. I mean, I do think that, that that the tech question in there is interesting to me. Like, especially when the kid says, like, instead of building a computer, maybe I'll build a woman. I mean, there's yeah. this kind of like, wait, what's going on? Like, what are, are you going to be weird science now? Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, what Don't is do the that. future? I do. I would love a sequel to Dress to Kill where we see what happened to that to boy. Him. Like, yeah. What did he end up doing with his life? How did he yeah. end up, you know, playing out the primal I know he's in Silicon Valley now and we all hate him or what (laughs) happened. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Well, screenwriter Paul Schrader's fourth film as a director marked not only his first remake, but also the first one he didn't primarily write the screenplay to. And in my eyes, personally, I think it shows working as only an uncredited screenwriter tuning up the script by Alan Ormsby, who incidentally wrote Black Christmas director Bob Clark's impressive Death Dream, aka Dead of Night, if you have not seen that. Cat People by Schrader is loosely based on the 1942 classic from director Jacques Tournier and screenwriter DeWitt Bodine about a woman who changes into a panther when sexually aroused. Here in the 1982 version, however, they've switched things around from not only the 1942 film, but also multiple scripts, which had been written for this long and development project, including two from Bob Clark himself. Taking a note from director Roger Vadim that it might be sexist to have a sexual female being be perceived as dangerous and a panther that needs to be destroyed, this version creates two shape-shifting human panther hybrids in the form of a long separated orphan twins, Malcolm McDowell and Nastasia Kinski. Making McDowell the heavy in Schrader's film, he has incestuous feelings for Kinski, who as a virgin has no idea that she will turn into a deadly panther if she has sex. Co-starring John Hurd, Ruby Dee, Annette O'Toole, and Ed Begley Jr., the film might bill itself an erotic fantasy and is such a product of its time that even David Bowie does the theme song, but it just didn't really work for me overall. Still, it was cool to see a remake take some really big swings, even if I didn't love the end result, as well as the original or other Paul Schrader films. But it does have that Schrader ending, as you pointed out, and that was very cool. So what is your take on Cat People? Well, I mean, look, I I know that this is not by any means the best movie out there, but there is something about it that I really... I don't know. The first time I saw it, it really got under my skin in an interesting way. And I do think it's also probably the least 
horror of the movies that we're talking about. Yeah. I think genre, the genre here is a little confused. Like there are moments where it does feel like a very traditional horror film. Like I would say there's a scene where, um, as Ed Begley Jr., right. His, his character is killed in a very like traditional horror movie, like, Oh yeah, here I am singing a song. That's a yes. cue that I'm about to get destroyed, <laughs> right? Fine, but yeah, yeah. Not, and then yeah. It, there's like that shot of like you know the blood spreading out on the floor. Yes. So there's moments where it's very horror, and I think there's, you know, if you've seen the original Cat People, there's like a swimming pool sequence oh that's sort of translated here in a way that is pretty. Uh, I wouldn't call it scary, but it's it's eerie. It's upsetting. Yeah. Right. But I do feel like one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is this question, as you brought up, of the the fear of of female sexuality. And I do I guess I mean, he tries to there is that, you know, the male character in this version as well. But it still seems like Natasha Kinski's character is the the one you should be a little more afraid of. Exactly. Um, I mean, Malcolm McDowell's character feels more like. You maybe know. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say maybe it's that his character feels very intentional in his evil. Yes. Whereas her character feels, again, akin to Michael Caine's character in Dress to Kill, akin to Billy in Black Christmas, maybe unable to control this yeah. urge to, to destroy. And that's that's sort of the fear at the heart of it. It is. And it's a really good point. It actually carries into the next one, too, of something happening that you're unable to control. Um, As somebody who's had like chronic pain and health issues since I was very little of a genetic issue and scoliosis, I've always kind of identified with um, films that kind of do that make, oh, my God, the horror is coming from the body because you can't control it, that type of thing. And so I did like that aspect of, oh, my God, but for me, when I watch these movies, and especially this one, I think a lot of people would feel this way. You have sympathy, especially for Kinski, because this is something she definitely can't control. And she isn't uh, relishing in it to the degree. I mean, when you see Michael or Malcolm McDowell, you basically know, I mean, it's the guy from Clockwork Orange. He kind of gravitates to these parts. Like he just creeps you out right away. I mean, no offense, probably the nicest guy in the world, but as soon as you see him, you're just like, stay away, stay away. Yep. Yes. And you know, like with the first killing, it's like, well, it's that guy. Come on. But yeah, I, I love to um, Schrader was involved with Kinski uh, during the making of this. And I love his affection for her, which is carried throughout like the opening shot of her arriving at the airport is echoed from a panther that we saw. And she has very feline features the haircut they gave her. Um, And so his affection for her kind of makes you really care about her as well. That was probably by design because one of my favorite like anecdotes about this movie came from Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. It's like famous now. Um, They had an affair during the shoot. He was so in love with her. He was going to propose to her at the rap party. She like ghosted it took him months to track her down in Paris. When he finally did, she just leveled with him. And it's like, Paul, I always fuck my directors, but with you, it was difficult. And yeah. <laughs> I just love the bluntness <laughs> and you feel like, you know, just jaw drop. But I think the reason that she did it, and I believe she might've explained it in the book was because that way the working relationship, she felt that 
it worked better. She had better coverage in the film, better shots, um, and was presented at her most beautiful. And in this film, it really pays off, I think, for her. But it's yeah, it's, it's a strange little piece of trivia that is the first thing I think of whenever I hear the name Paul Schrader. And I'm a fan, but yeah, it's crazy. Look, he's not not a non-problematic. Oh God, yes. <laughs> and I do think, I mean, again, this movie, as with in a different way from Dress to Kill, has some things that I think don't. When you watch it now, you're like, mm, I don't know if that yeah, aged that's well. a little. Like, mm-hmm, the TV. opening is definitely probably racist, right? This sort of yeah. like African, but yeah. I do think there's. And so, so it opens and you're in this kind of surreal, red-tinged African savanna. And we mm-hmm. kind of understand that this race of cat people, and that's from the original story, right? That this race yeah. of cat people mm-hmm. you know, um, has been around forever. I do like the way that that plays on the horror genre's obsession with like unearthing an artifact from the past, right? Like it's very similar to like The Exorcist, right? Where you have this kind of like, red tinged um, oh, good point archaeological yeah. site where you're unearthing the demon right there's always that like oh don't dig that up you know yeah. um, <laughs> don't move into the house on the burial ground yet like stay away from yeah. that stuff yeah I don't think I mean again I don't think it translates well if you want to deal with race in the film that's no. a different podcast and again there's that character the sort Ruby of D. yeah yeah the caretaker of the house who's I don't think presented very sympathetically and definitely carries a lot of stereotypes of like this sort of like voodoo woman who's yeah a little bit you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. that new I mean it's in New Orleans so you've got that kind of I know it's like you're dealing with there but it's not done well (laughs) it's like a character Um, out of Angel Heart basically has been stuck in that movie yeah yeah, it's yeah. not it's it's not a great look Mm-mm. in the contemporary world, but no. but I do think in a way there was a way where this movie reminds me a little bit of Altered States. Oh, okay. I don't know if you can see that, but like it's that it's same been idea. So long like, since I saw Altered States, so I'm like barely remember. Know. So go for it. Love Altered States. I love Need Altered to watch States. It again. But, this idea of like you're tapping into some kind of primal force that is okay. inherently, you know, maybe not evil, but dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Or that it's going to transform you into some kind of primal being that you can't, that you don't have control over, right? Yeah. So I feel like the, this, there's sequences in altered states that almost remind me visually of that sort of um, opening of cat people. And then there's also, I mean, I, I guess it's clear from this list of movies that I'm into surreal dream sequences, but oh, yeah. the, there's a surreal dream sequence towards the end of the movie where she's on the train and she kind of like, there's a weird moment where you're like, wait, is she, is this real or is she dreaming? And she kind mm-hmm. of walks into this airport hangar and then out into this desert. Um, so I like that. I like that they're playing with this primal question. I think it also, what's interesting to me on a gender level is thinking about the ways, and and Carol J. Clover talks about this in her book, but the ways that gender was not always perceived as a binary system, right? That true. gender originally was seen, it was seen more like a one gender system, right? Mm-hmm. Where men and women were two expressions of the same thing, yeah. right? That um, a woman is like an inverted man, right? Biologically. Yeah. 
Um, and we kind of map on to each other in this way. And I do think there's an interesting instinctual thing going on with her and Malcolm McDowell where they, they, I mean, yeah, there's that incesty thing, which I is really icky, but yeah. it's almost sees them as two parts of one body, right? These twin, this twin question, this question of like, again, yeah, again, a binary that should be made whole, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you could read his desire to kind of have her sexually as a desire to kind of unite with her, right? And become Mm -hmm. whole again. Um, And I do think that the other thing that's interesting to me about this movie is that we do have a perspective switch here, but it's not a, a protagonist perspective switch. It's a villain perspective switch for me. So I, you oh, can John disagree Hurt. with me, but yeah, yeah, I feel like the first half of the movie, Malcolm McDowell is the villain, right? Yeah. And then he gets killed. And then yeah. all of a sudden John Hurt is the villain. And that is a really interesting move to me. That's again, similar to black Christmas where you've got this boyfriend who's now also, you know, in the position of being a little scary in his desires to control and tame this woman. Yeah, very true. I know. And John Hurd can play that so well. I loved him in Deceived. It's one of my favorite like thrillers from the nineties that basically no one saw because Goldie Hawn was in it and she doesn't do um, like dramas or thrillers much, but it's just a lot of fun. And uh, he's, he's bad in that. And it's great because you see him and instinctively, I mean, he's handsome. He's kind of like guy next door. You're just like, oh, it's John Hurd. He's going to be great. And for a bulk of the movie, he is. And what's interesting is she comes to him and first she wants him to kill her and then have sex with her just so she could turn into the Panther again. And he doesn't want to at first, but he does. And then he controls her at the end and he's got her caged and so yeah he's her new captor it's it's really twisted and really daring and i think because it's john heard he can pull that off very well yeah yeah it is really upsetting yeah because i think you know the first time i saw it you do you read this at the end so the basic I feel like we haven't said the basic premise of the movie, but um, she she turns into a panther when she's sexually aroused, yeah. right? And then she has to kill to turn back into a person. Mm-hmm. Again, similar motivation as in Dress to Kill, right? He kills when he's sexually aroused, right? Because it brings up I this know. part of himself that he can't control, right? So this mm-hmm. question of sex as something as that is, yeah. yeah, that is scary. Um, and the first time I saw it there's that moment at the end where she wants him to have sex with her and you're like Mm -hmm. oh okay she wants him to turn her into a panther so that he can kill her Mm -hmm. um without hesitation right because he was going to shoot her at one point when she was a panther and then she escapes and then by the time he sees her she's a human again and he can't kill her because she's beautiful (laughs) (laughs) and then but then yeah instead of instead of killing her he he takes her to that zoo which is Oh my God, Jen, the scariest zoo I've ever seen. It is That's so the most creepy part of that movie. Yeah. The, the animals are in those tiny yeah. cages. It's a and bad it's, zoo. I mean, it's yeah. the bad zoo. <laughs> I love when she goes, if she wants to go to the zoo, was it the cab driver even says like, go to the Bronx zoo or like, he's like yeah. trying to get her to, if you want to go to a zoo, go to a good one. So, but yeah, and I love how they have like a net O'Toole trying to 
you know, let her know this place is great and that kind of thing. And she's sizing her up as sort of a female rival, which is an interesting thing. And I wish more had been done with her character. But yeah, yeah, it's a bad zoo for sure. You just don't want to be there. I did not look this up, but is that a real zoo in New Orleans? It can't. I didn't. I don't know. That's a really good question. If it is, if you're from New Orleans, like reply and let us know. Because, yeah, it's alarming. (laughs) It's really scary. Yeah, pick at that. Like, hey, bigger cages. Maybe today it looks great. Who knows? (laughs) I don't know. Wherever (laughs) they shot that, that. it's concerning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to that question of at the beginning of the movie of the ruins, right? And the primal, because I think John Hurd says at one point, like, this is a 100-year-old zoo and the exhibits are falling apart and like, I'm doing my best. Um, But I do feel like, and Schrader is so interested in ruins. I mean, yeah, um, we have kind of a a joke at Brightwall that we're going to do an issue on the canyons um, because <laughs> Chad Berman hates the canyons, and I keep being oh like, God, we need to do an issue just devoted to the canyons. Which, I mean, look, the canyons is a terrible movie, but mm-hmm. there's some interesting things that are happening in that terrible movie. One of which is all of these shots of ruined movie theaters um, inserted in the middle of this terrible erotic thriller. <laughs> um, and I do think that this ruined zoo like this falling apart broken down zoo is like I don't know this decay Mm -hmm. at the heart you know it is real I just googled it it is the Audubon Zoo 6500 Magazine Street New Orleans oh my god I hope it's so much better today because that was not a good zoo unless they just made it look even scarier back then who knows but Maybe they don't actually keep big animals in those tiny cages. Maybe that's what my just hope is. Yeah, monkey or something. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, but yeah, oh. it's an interesting twist on that classic Schrader ending, right? Because yeah. usually, the person behind bars is a man, mm-hmm. and usually, and again, like you said, it's the Brisson ending, right? He's yeah. he's hoping to be saved by this woman that he loves. And she's, you know, the promise is like, I will wait for you. I'll be there for you. Yeah. You know, I love you no matter how many years you spend in prison, I will yeah. always be here. Right. But this ending, it's the woman behind bars in the persona of an animal with the boyfriend outside the bars. And he's not, Mm-mm. I don't know that the promise is I will be here for you. I feel like the promise oh. is, I'm going to keep you here with me. Yep. Good luck getting out. Like, I know. You're here now. And he's, you know, seemingly married to Annette O'Toole. I mean, it's just like double torture of, yeah, we're not together. I'm keeping you here. And you get to see me be happy with the woman that I live with. Like, it's yeah. a bad ending. But yeah, it's totally different than like the American Gigolo or Light Sleeper ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of mm-hmm. Gigolo... Um, Light Sleeper is the one film where I feel like he got better at it. I've never thought that Schrader is good at directing sex scenes. They're always, well, his movies are a little <laughs> chilly to begin with. And yeah. they're just kind of clinical. Like in American Gigolo, I think they're supposed to be. Except mm-hmm. when it's supposed to be romantic and it still has that. And Schrader just has kind of an issue with that. First Reformed had kind of an emotionally romantic sequence that worked but and light sleepers a little better but 
he has some problems. So when I saw the poster, when I was looking up the movie and it said an erotic fantasy, I was like, Paul Schrader, really? And so um, <laughs> that was an issue I, I had with the film where it's, it's kind of colder. And so I was wondering, I mean, obviously we didn't see it in 1982. Maybe it played differently then. But yeah, that was my one takeaway too is I don't know if he was the right guy for this. When I saw like Vadim and other people had at one point been attached to it. I think even Bob Clark at one point. Um, I don't know about that one either. But Vadim, I think might have been an interesting choice. Mm. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. No. Yeah. I don't think, I definitely don't think it all, it all works. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's, it's, yeah, there's something about it. That's very, um, I don't know. You can't, I find it hard to look away from even when oh, you're like, yes, oh, definitely you're like, <laughs> by it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and there was one other moment I wanted to think about because of this sort of theme in all of these movies of what's trapped inside, you know, what's trying to come out. Mm -hmm. There's that moment where he has the dead Panther, the Malcolm McDowell Panther on the like autopsy table, John and John like cuts the Panther open and that human arm like oh my god yes coming out of the Panther and it's It's the reverse of yeah. And yeah. it's that reverse of like the alien being trapped inside. It's the human trapped inside the, so like, mm-hmm. which came first, the man or the panther, right? Good um, point. Yes. And it is kind of like, I don't know, it's pretty gross. There are some gross. Yeah. The, the grossest part of this movie is like, oh, that slime that. Um, I didn't the, know what that, at first I, I wondered if it was symbolic of, you know, something. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah we won't go there. Like we know what we're talking about, but yeah. An emission of some kind yeah. after <laughs> transformation is involved. I was like, okay, <sighs> what is so the black gross. stuff and the skip? Yeah, sticky. It was, yeah, it's it a gross. It's so news. gross. Yes. And, and, and then Malcolm McDowell, when he turns back into a human at one point, like he starts eating it off oh of my himself, God. like the lizard that shed its skin. And it's disgusting. Like it, it literally. Really I feel like I'm in a gag when I watch it. It's yeah, real gross. <laughs> Basically, don't eat lunch and watch this movie. That's the lesson here. <laughs> they all have lessons. Exactly. That's what we're learning. Yes. <laughs> Was there anything else you'd like to add on this one? Um, I wondered at one point in the film, but it's a little, I feel like it's a little early for this to be, because it's 82, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not. There was a part where she says, you know, she says to John Hurd, like, would you still love me if you couldn't have sex with me? Um, yes, I thought that was I, pretty good yeah. for 82. Yeah. I think that's an interesting moment. And I think it's interesting in a couple ways. I think it's, you could read it as being even maybe like an AIDS question or yeah. this question of like, there's something I'm carrying, right? That you can't like, because yeah. of that we Mm -hmm. cannot connect intimately physically or even a question of disability or a question of, you know, any kind of in impaired, like impaired nature of that physical connection um, that I think actually maybe indicates one of her fears in the movie. Right. And then in an interesting way, it's answered at the end because I mean, I hope that he's not having sex with the Panther. I know, I know you're like darkly wondering, does he give her people? Does the cycle continue? Like what is going on with this relationship? It's creepy. Yeah. He caresses. Oh yeah. 
But I do think you could read it. I do think you could read it as like, yeah, I'd love you if I couldn't have sex with you as long as I could control you, right? True. Yeah. Control and power is what he wants, not the sex, right? Mm -hmm. It's I I want to be in control of you. That's what I love. Yeah. Um, Which is which is kind of chilling. It is a very chilling reading, especially because you go in assuming he's the good guy because. Um, he catches her outside the zoo and then gives her a job and he just seems like such a gregarious person but then we realize his needs and what's really beneath all of that I guess and yeah not a good look come on John Hurd but no it's great not great (laughs) yeah well this brings us to a very exciting part of the podcast the Nicolas Cage part of today's podcast by way of two daring features that couldn't in all actuality be more different, except they both star Nicolas Cage in two wildly uninhibited roles. I mean, there's going for it, then there's Nicolas Cage going for it, and that's just a whole different level of committing to a role. In the first of two certifiable cult films, 1989's Vampire's Kiss, Cage plays a smug, yuppie literary agent with an escalating personality disorder, and major power and control issues regarding the opposite sex. Sounds a lot like John Hurd. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Spending most evenings going to clubs to pick up women for sex. After Cage is bitten in the neck by an amorous lover, he becomes convinced she turned him into a vampire. A dark, disturbing look at mental illness as it makes us question Cage at every turn and his interactions with others including Maria Conchita Alonzo, Jennifer Beals, Casey Lemons, and Elizabeth Ashley. The film directed by Robert Bierman was written by After Hours screenwriter Joseph Minion. Then we catch up with Cage in 2018 in the even more otherworldly, psychedelic, nightmarish Mandy, directed by Panos Cosmatos. I hope I'm saying that right. I apologize if I'm not, and written by the filmmaker based on his own story, along with co-screenwriter Aaron stewart on The film stars Cage and Andrea Risbro as lovers living a seemingly idyllic existence near the shadow mountains of the Mojave Desert in California in 1983. A logger with a dark past who's deeply in love with Risbro's artists, both of them seem to be recovering from trauma, ranging from childhood abuse in her case and or alcoholism or war experiences in his. And while they found solace in one another, it's ripped apart after an evil cult leader named Jeremiah Sand, played by Linus Roche, orders his followers to abduct Bandy for his own. Unresponsive to his overtures, he burns Risborough's Mandy alive in front of Cage's Red. Then Cage sets out on a hellish drug-fueled journey for revenge. A far more introverted turn, at least for the first chunk of the movie, than Cage gleefully gives us in his alphabet-shouting Vampire's Kiss. These two iconoclastic above-average films, while not for all types, illustrate Cage's firm devotion to originality, uncompromising narratives, and new approaches to storytelling. Obviously, there's a lot here to unpack, but I would love to hear your thoughts on both of these films. 
Yeah, as you said, um, so much to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I liked hearing your summary of Mandy because I was wondering how how is she going to summarize? Hard. That yeah, I'm like I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think so. Um, most people who like horror movies have probably seen Mandy. I think Vampire's Kiss is a little underseen, and yeah. I know that it's kind of got like a cult film status, especially this idea that it's ridiculous, you know, Cage's per- performance is ridiculous and it's laughable and it's like so bad it's good. But I actually am going to advocate for, I feel like this movie is legitimately scary. Um, it is. I th- and Vampire's and- Kiss to me is, so disturbing. I mean, yes, you can laugh. And like, yes, when I watched it for the first time, like I was in tears at the alphabet sequence, like yeah. literal tears pouring down my face of laughter. I rewound it twice. Yes. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's yeah. insane. Mm-hmm. But then you, that very quickly, like there's some great tonal shifts, I think yeah. in that movie where the insanity that makes you laugh is also the insanity that makes you go, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> like I shouldn't be laughing. This, yeah. This is maybe not funny. Right. Yeah. Um, and I do think that both of these movies, I mean, like you said, it's, it's caged. I couldn't imagine anyone but cage no. <laughs> in either of these roles. And I know that it may not seem like the gender themes are as strong here as in the first three movies we talked about, but I do think that Cage's form of masculinity, especially like ramped up out of control masculinity is fascinating to me. It is. There's so much going on with him with um, scoring every night. Then he wants the women gone immediately. He doesn't like it when his therapist is the one to tell them that he's out of time when they see each other, like he needs the last word. There's a lot there. It's so interesting that this was Joseph Minion. I read um, that he wrote the script based on a relationship he was in. He was going through depression and anxiety and he felt like she was sucking the life out of him creatively. Weirdly, this woman actually produced the movie and then realized just how dark and disturbing he viewed their relationship as and that put an end to their relationship but I think that's a really funny thing but it's cool if you think about this movie back to back with After Hours because that film deals with um, women leading a man who's very selfish especially um, he uses sex as a transaction he views pretty much everything as a transaction Um, he's led into the underworld of New York at night by women Women are dangerous or scary to him. He can't get away. So there's an overlap there of gender and sex and Joseph Minion's issues. And I think Cage is perfect to bring these to life. I love the accent that he uses. What did you think of that? It's like a weird affect. Yeah. It's so crazy. Well, and then I, for so for the first time recently, I watched the movie Sliver. Um, with William oh, yes. Baldwin. Yeah. And I almost like yelled because William Baldwin is doing the same weird accent as Nick Cage in Vampire's Kiss. It's like this bizarre, Dude. I don't even know how to describe yeah. it. Um, and it's so like, as soon as I heard William Baldwin start talking in Sliver, I was like, oh my God, it's like the Vampire's Kiss accent. That's crazy. I'm um, going to have to rewatch that now. Oh my God. I think I read somewhere that Cage was approximating his own father's accent or like an exaggerated version of his oh, wow. dad. I don't know if that's true or not. That would um, be interesting. 
Yeah. I do think, yeah, as you were talking to, I was thinking, I mean, obviously this movie could also be seen in juxtaposition with American Psycho in a lot of interesting ways, right? Oh, it would be a perfect double feature. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Except Christian Bale's character actually has all the masculine traits that Nick Cage's character in Vampire's Kiss wished he had, right? And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you're looking at the legacy of horror myths and Mm -hmm. mythos, this is clearly, you know, a Renfield story. I don't know if you know the Dracula story very well, but... Not super well. Okay, so there's a character in Dracula named Renfield. And if you've only seen the 1930 version, you might be confused because they make Renfield the name of the main character, which is not, it's Harker. I don't know why they did that in in 1930. But anyway, Renfield is this psychiatric patient Mm -hmm. um, who is visited by like the spirit of Dracula and becomes obsessed with Dracula and sees him as like his master and he becomes convinced that it, he too could become a vampire oh, like okay. Dracula. Interesting. And he tries to do it by like consuming life forms. So he okay. starts by eating insects, right? And eating Oh, that's right in the movie. Yep. Yeah. And, and he, then he tries to eat like mice. And then at one point he eats like a pigeon and then he like vomits up like pigeon feathers. So I think mm-hmm. it's very like, the Renfield stuff is is really strong in Vampire's Kiss, and it's such an interesting character to run with because it's not Dracula, right? It's yeah. not the vampire master himself, the sex symbol. It's the sad minion who mm-hmm. wishes he were yes. that, right? And so it's this this story of like, you know, if you want to think about masculinity, right? Like a man who feels that he doesn't have the qualities of an alpha male yeah. and will do anything. Thing to kind of attempt to project himself into that place, even enact violence against women or eat a cockroach. <laughs> I know that um, is so crazy. Yeah. 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 And that's interesting what you said to Cage's dad is an academic, he's a professor, he's in uh, the literary fields. And so it would be interesting if he did that. I guess I read that Dennis Quaid had this role first, but had to pull out for some kind of scheduling conflict. I don't know it's hard to watch it and imagine that we would still, I mean, no offense, he's great in other things, but it's hard to imagine we would still be talking about this film on this level this many years later. And what's crazy is I actually, in film school, I did an acting presentation on Cage because he's one of my favorites. He's actually the first male actor I remember seeing in a movie uh, in the theater, like live action film. Uh, in Moonstruck. So I've always loved him. And I guess um, because it was right after Moonstruck and I was showing a clip from the movie, they told the year oh, I'm showing, oh, it's from, you know, I gave the year and they're like, oh, is that the movie where he ate a cockroach? And it's like, no wrong movie. <laughs> but what's hilarious well, is he, what if he ate a cockroach in Moonstruck? <laughs> that would, yeah. I don't think we would still be talking about that. It'd be crazy. Who knows yes. though, down making bread. What is he doing? Eating cockroaches? No. Um, exactly. Yeah, but what I was going to say is uh, (laughs) even his agent, though, at the time, because he had just made Moonstruck, it was a hit, it won people Oscars, um, was like, this is not the movie to do after Moonstruck. And what I love so much about Cage is to him it was. And so he's always willing to just risk everything and do these. This is before, of course, the 90s when he was kind of on autopilot in some of those films, but he's still great. Yeah. No, he's always great. Um, mm-hmm. He's always great. And I do think that, like, there's, 
the movie just nails, I think, that weird tone of flipping back and forth between ridiculous and scary, right? And I think that that is like a primal thing where you there's something that you at first laugh at. Well, you brought up Zodiac earlier and, you know, that that lake killing scene. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You can tell that the guy in it at first is like, this can't be happening, right? This isn't yeah. real. Like, I this know. isn't, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be killed. Like, he's not going to kill us. Like, we'll give him the money, right? So there is that moment where something uh-huh. extreme is happening where you kind of feel like, oh, that can't be, like, this isn't really, this isn't real. I know, this isn't right? <laughs> like, there's not a man dressed in a crazy outfit with weapons walking across a park. That's yeah. not real. <laughs> um, and I do think that, that that's true in this movie. Like, you know, he puts in plastic fangs and you're like, that's oh God, so I stupid. Yeah. And he's talking, he can't speak through the plastic fangs. I know, he has in the phone accent. to Elizabeth Ashley. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the and it's fangs so and the accent. Yeah. But then he, ki- but then he kills a woman. Yeah. Right. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, that's not so funny. Right. No. Um, so there's that weird, like, yeah. That tonal flow is really fun to to think about. Very much. And he's like kind of the ultimate unreliable narrator. I love unreliable narrators in film. And he is really the epitome of it because he keeps seeing the Beals character throughout the film. And we don't know if she's really there in the morning after their tryst. We don't see on his neck that he was even bitten. Um, Mm -hmm. Suddenly then there's a Band-Aid. There's lot of questioning who this guy is and so it gets progressively darker and you don't know who you can trust except you do find yourself identifying with a lot of the women in the movie like you think they're the reliable ones they're the ones that like this is actually happening the Maria Conchita Alonzo character just totally uh, I've had really I'm sure you have too like soul-sucking jobs and you know, supervisors that ask you to do horrible things. And so her character, especially watching it in the post Me Too era, I thought, boy, if, you know, there'd be a million takes on the internet if people discovered this movie all of a sudden and wrote about her character because it still really hits hard, I think. It does. It's really scary. Like he, uh, you know, she's his long-suffering assistant and he's constantly you get the, the sense that he's, you know, been emotionally abusing her for, yeah. and verbally abusing her for, you know, years. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when he does finally physically attack her, it's very scary. Horrifying. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's one of those scenes that in the movie that is really, you can't laugh through it. Right. You can, no. and the movie shifts so suddenly where at one point you're laughing because he's like, Oh my, you know, where's yeah. the paper? <laughs> premise of the the, the ridiculous right we're we're trying to find a contract from like 50 years ago I mean it makes no sense it's such an arcane stupid plot I know Um, it's a misfiled document and yeah yeah which again is very American psycho this idea that like a tiny like a business card matters or like a misfiled document could could set you off Mm -hmm. um but yeah, then it shifts so quickly into like, he's attacking Alma and, and, you know, trying to force himself on her. And it's really viscerally upsetting. Yeah. Um, and the way it's shot is very, very scary. Yeah. Um, and she's so broken by it. 
afterwards, right? We do follow her and she goes home and she's, she won't come out of the bedroom. And um, yeah, it's really upsetting. Yeah. It's a really twisted thing that you're following this character. And at first you just think, Oh, he's a little misguided or, Hey, there's a bat flying in his apartment. Like that's crazy. But then as it goes on and, you know, by the end of the movie, he admits to rape, it's like, Jesus, like we've followed this guy and we didn't know where to look and kind of um, a good metaphor for mental illness, like what it can do to somebody you imagine, you don't know how twisted or why he goes to a shrink every week or however often he goes, but, you know, you wonder by the end of the movie, was he always like that a little bit and this just set him off or what happened? It's, yeah, makes you Yeah, think. and I, I feel like similar to the question of transgendered, the transgendered character in Dress to Kill, the question of mental illness here, like, yeah. I, you know, I don't think that the film is saying mentally ill people are monsters right but Not i do think but it's, there is this question of of this repressed yeah you know, thing inside of him of that self. he hasn't been able to to deal with i mean of course horror films in general there there is you know a bad track record of painting mental yeah. illness as something One scary right? yeah mm-hmm. um but I think this film, it, it is pretty scary. And you brought up the therapist by the end of the film. I don't know. You kind of question, like, was she ever real? That's the was other thing. Yeah. Her at all? Is she just inside of him? Like, you have no what's clue. real and what's not. Yeah. This question of reality hangs very heavy over the movie. Um, yeah. In, in, a, in a scary way. It so, does. And his, his, it's so sad too. It's so like pitiful. He's such a pitiful character. That's the he really Renfield is. Yeah. Um, that he's not someone you almost feel disgusted by him. And it, when you come into his apartment at the end of the movie, his like oh my sad, goodness. stupid, like yeah. coffin contraption, like it's ridiculous and sad and scary in how, um, and how out of control his life yeah. is. And yeah, you do wonder like, when did this spiraling yeah. happen? Like, mm-hmm. was he relatively sane until one thing set him off or was he always this crazy? Um, and that question of like the self as monster, right. Is, is very, is very present in the movie. Yeah. And because early on he's seeing Casey lemons and, um, she was they were supposed to meet at the museum he's there like briefly and then just leaves and um i mean i know people have been stood up and weird things happen on dates and everything but that's just bizarre you start wondering then how much like how is their relationship was his apartment did it ever look like that like what what is real by the end of the film it has you questioning everything else i should say to anyone listening casey lemons yes actress casey lemons the director uh who made such great movies as um talk to me and uh eve's bayou which is one of my favorites so before she started directing movies she was an actress and She's really good in this. All of the women are, I think it's hard or it had to be really hard to act opposite Cage, especially when he's jumping on tables and doing what he does and speaking with that crazy voice. But I think they're all great, especially Maria Conchita Alonso and uh, Elizabeth Ashley has some fun scenes as a therapist as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I love that her office. And again, I do think there's a question of like, is that yeah. a real office? I don't know. But the office yes. we see through the movie is in this really high sky rise and has this giant window sort of looking out onto the city. And I feel like, you know, I don't know. I'm re- Oh, sorry. That's my dog. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about even the attic in um, Black Christmas or this question of like, yeah, if you want to see space in the film as representative psychologically. Oh, yeah. Ego again. This is the space of the mind way up high and, and something is disturbed or there's some function that's not working yeah. um, up there, right? And then we go down. Doesn't he have salt Alma in the parking garage or? I think so, yeah. So it's the yeah. lowest level you can get. So yeah, that would be your id. Yep, that's crazy. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, and also, I just think, I mean, it is such a fun performance. It's impossible not to be um, enchanted in yeah. some way by by the insane choices he's making. I know. the Just the guts to do that. Like thinking of the movies he had been in before and then deciding to just take this part in a way that I don't think many people would have done. He said a lot of it was choreographed, some of his movements, but other people uh, that were working opposite him said, no, he just straight up did things and they had no idea what he was going to do next, which is really crazy, but it sounds like Cage and it works well for this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Totally different performance to uh, the one next in 2018, Mandy. What did you think of that one? I mean, look, this movie, Mandy, is crazy, right? I think that it's a visual feast. You know, there's so many scenes. It just, it almost, I haven't seen Panos Cosmatos' first movie, Beyond the Black Rainbow, but my husband has, and he said it's similarly, like, just crazy visuals throughout where you almost feel like you're hallucinating, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one of those movies that you're watching, and it kind of puts you into it surreal state of mind yeah um i do think the reason i wanted to talk about it too is that i think that the the question of the character of mandy is so central to this film and so central to nicholas cage's character red in a really interesting way right There's, there's a million things we could talk about this movie right there's so many directions to go but she like the final girls of many a uh, horror movie is not a stereotypical woman, right? She's presented no. in sort of this, um, she's not wearing makeup. Mm-hmm. She's not, you know, objectified. I mean, he certainly sees her, you know, as an object of his affection, but the way he looks at her in the movie and the way the camera looks at her in the movie, I think is very interesting. It's not sexualized, right? Mm-hmm. And, in a traditional sense. Um, He loves her art. He loves her mind. Um, He sort of, and this is one of my sort of theses about this movie is that he sort of sees her as an extension of himself, I think. Right. I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many moments where it's about the meeting of their eyes. Right. Or the way that um, even they're wearing the same shirt, right. They're wearing that, 44 shirt and they're kind of like almost the same person yeah um and his other half kind of yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's like he and mandy 
we do get the sense that there's been some trauma that they've both mm-hmm. dealt with maybe separate traumas, maybe a shared trauma, maybe both, but they seem to be melded in this really um, primal way. Mm-hmm. And so when she's killed, which again, the reason she's killed is that she refuses to be submissive. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's, that's a scene that is very scary when she's, Oh when my she's God. Yes. And drugged. And, you know, this sort of Manson-ish figure, Manson-ish, even in the way that he's like, I wanted to be a musician. You know? I know, <laughs> it's obviously a play on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this scary. sort of Manson-ish figure, like he he's wants to clearly, you know, rape her. He wants to sexually yep. assault her and she laughs at him. Mm-hmm. And it's such a bold choice that you know and spells her death right like yep. she would rather laugh than than submit and live yep. and so i think that the way she's killed is fascinating too because in so many of these movies we see the female pain right we see the woman's face contorted with fear and and we see the wounds as the killer is stabbing her but he puts her in a bag and he burns her and we yes. don't see her at all. Mm-mm. Right. And I think that that's so chilling. Um, but also a really interesting like moment where there's this irresolution. And when Cage's character is watching her. Burn, oh my God. Cause basically the camera is on him. Yeah. Yeah. He's watching her burn. And I do think that that is a moment again, similar to this question of viewership that is at the heart of so many of these films. He is the male audience member watching the woman die. He is melded with her in that moment. And he Mm -hmm. is then also watching himself die. Right. And so this question of his revenge that fuels that whole insane (laughs) part of the film um, is very, it's, it's almost like he's doing it not just because like a woman was killed, but because like, I was like, that hurt me, right? Like it was, it was, you were hurting me. You were burning me almost. Very true. No, that's excellent points. What you were saying about the eye contact, um, I think is so strong because it does zero in on eyes. Um, There's the scar below Mandy's eye. uh, The thing with the drugging. I mean, eyes Mm -hmm. play a big part this morning. This is totally out of left field. But um, I was watching an episode of Larry Sanders' show. I've been like rewatching it. And there's a scene where a woman compliments Rip Torn, like, oh, you look great today. And he's such a charmer. He's like, oh, it's your reflection in my eyes. But basically, that's Mm -hmm. what's going on in this movie is they're locked. They are one. There's so much extended eye contact. It's quiet. And then we do see, because I think they knew like if they just focused purely on Mandy burning, it would be too much. Uh, it's actually worse Um, just like it's worse when they don't show the violence in movies you can see that in Reservoir Dogs and um, movies where they pull away where you think you see something watching Cage just come apart is devastating yeah yeah the reflection in his eye and it's long it is it goes on for so long I mean I didn't time it but in my it felt like a very long time right as it where you're like oh my god like this is still going on (laughs) when are we gonna leave this spot I know oh yes Brian Tallarico um, from RogerEbert.com I was doing some reading on it and I read my friend 
your friend too. Travis Woods is beautiful piece in Brightwall. Yeah. Uh, but I've read Brian Talrico's review too. And he was comparing it. He said like the first hour is a slow descent into hell. And then the second hour is, you know, an eventual climb, very bloody climb out of it. I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Almost like a Dante and Beatrice type of thing there. Yes, very um, much. But yeah, it's definitely, I think that that climb out of it is so insane that again, yeah. you almost can't help but laugh at moments where you're like, exactly. <laughs> like I that you say, crazy evil. <laughs> yes. Again, those choices that he makes. Yeah. I yeah. think the most like, and you said uh, Dante and Beatrice brings us back a little bit to cat people because I was reading mm. about it and Schrader said that in his eyes, he was comparing, um, I think it might've been McDowell's character and Kinski to like Dante and Beatrice a little bit. Hmm. I thought was interesting and weird, but um, bringing it back to this one. Yeah. The choices that he makes the scene that's going to be talked about the most because of the amount of like gifs and memes is, you know, cage coming back after seeing his love burn and just wailing. And it goes on for a long time. He's in the bathroom, he's losing it. He, falls off the wagon starts drinking and at first it does seem much but the more you watch it just the sadder and sadder it gets because he's in such pain he doesn't know where to put it or what to do or how to control again the question of control his actions and it's just heartbreaking and i think it actually works really well but other people yeah might, it's think almost... it's funny and it's not yeah well no it's almost that like cage understands as an actor that sometimes the way to get to truth is through excess of, yep. of whatever it is. Right. That, it, I mean, yeah. it's, I know the idea of something being Lynchian is overdone, but um, I think so much about, you know, the way Lynch will hold so long on certain expressions and for a while yeah. it's funny and then it switches to not being funny anymore. Then it's right. And I think that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that scene where he's in the bathroom, it is exactly like at first you're like, oh my God, this is ludicrous. So it's crazy. Yeah. Cage being cage, right? And then it does switch to like, oh my God, how would I feel mm-hmm. if the person I loved was killed in front of me? I'd probably feel like this, right? Yeah, and, it refuses um, to blink. Yeah, or look away. Going back to that, going back to cat people too, he has that tiger shirt on, right? That animal. Yes, that oh, that's a good shirt. one. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know. I think that the ending is also so interesting because he's sort of in one of her drawings at the end. Very much. Seemingly, right? Yeah. Like he, he sees her, right? So, I mean, we do get the idea that this guy's not going to be okay. <laughs> no, not at all. No, he was like barely okay, but he was doing well with her. But without yeah. her, he's done. Yeah. That's it. Um and he kind of, he, he hallucinates, you know, seeing her. And again, at the end, there's this moment of eye contact that's surreal eye contact, right? Mm-hmm. But the eye contact that he has of with his memory of her, right? So his that's own right. eyes turning inwards to see Mandy in himself. Um, and that's, again, that kind of like, she's in him, she's with him always. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of pull out and it, the, the landscape it looks like one of her drawings, right? So it he's does. kind of in 
he's inside of her, she's inside of him. Um, it's this sort of weird melding of the two of them that mm-hmm. I guess it's not uplifting, but <laughs> I think it's beautiful. I don't know. It's sad, it but it's beautiful. beautiful. The whole film is, I mean, some of the sequences are obviously like just completely hellish by design, but it's weirdly gorgeous, especially the first chunk. Um, I think it's almost like we're watching a graphic novel kind of come to life. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I I also love the conversation that the two of them have about like their favorite planets because, um, and why their favorite planets. Uh, That was a big part of uh, Travis's essay as well. And he was raising the question of when she was talking about um, loving, was it Jupiter, I believe, um, because it had a storm was raging and it always would or something like that. And then he suggests one because it had great like Saturn, I think it was, or maybe I flipped those, Saturn and Jupiter. And she liked um, some of the stories are cool, but then he changes his mind to a fictional one where he eats planets and I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Travis said like she was the one that eats the planets, but I actually think you could say that again, they're two halves of the same person. There's a storm raging and they're ready to eat planets, I guess. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's kind of like a gorgeous love story. I mean, it's weird to say that Mandy is a gorgeous love story, but it is, it's, it's, it ultimate, is. Yeah. it's ultimately a story about their you know, primal connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that it's, there is a catharsis in that film for sure. I mean, there's like yeah. five catharsis. <laughs> I know. Um, it isn't yeah. just death wish. By the end, there's like an emotional reason for him to take those actions. It's like we're in a different world or maybe on a different planet by the end because he's probably in a different planet, basically mentally. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, there's another movie produced by the same company, Spectre Vision, um, Color Out of Space. Have you seen that one? Not yet. Was That's really also good? Nick Cage. Well, I mean, it, there's some really upsetting stuff in that, that <laughs> I'm good with, I'm good with most horror, but there is like some mother child stuff in that. that oh, that's too much. Yeah. Upsetting for me. I, I actually Ooh, I had to look away at one point where I was like, oh, I know what's happening and I don't want to watch it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a sim, like, I think Color Out of Space is another, it's the great Nicolas Cage performance, not as ratcheted up as Mandy um, okay. for most of it, but still, you know, really intense. And it's also the color is so gorgeous in that film. I mean, obviously it's called Color Out of Space, so you're going to get color, but um, I love the way that Mandy's visuals are so, like yeah. you said, almost like graphic novelish or hallucinatory, dreamlike, mm-hmm. um, just heightened in this way that that puts you in the film in a very um, intense way. So true, and I think because emotions, the emotions are so heightened that um, it's almost impressionistic in the way that it does that. There's red. Um, you know, darkness, it's, yeah, it's a good way to use color. A lot of filmmakers are afraid of color these days. That's the problem with prestige TV is it all looks the same, basically, with the greenish hue. Yeah, just not, it's like embrace color. Maybe watch Mandy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 
there's a takeaway from all of these, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Embrace color. Yeah. Um, what was the takeaway from Black Christmas? I forget. <laughs> oh, I can't remember. We, got, we had some good yeah. morals in there. We had some. <laughs> they're gems. Rewind it and listen. No, Don't kidding. forget your ring. Don't forget your wedding ring. When yeah, you're if you're an having an affair. Sure. I mean, come on. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And go with your last ones. Yeah. I asked once on Twitter, like, who is the female Nick Cage? Because I do think oh, that, that's like, a good question. Like, there's no one like Nick Cage, no. right? But if you had, if you were going to choose like a female Nick Cage, who would it be? And I got, I got a good amount of responses. I actually just looked back at it before this podcast because I was like, who, who was the female Nick yeah, Cage? Yeah, who, who did the they consensus? choose? Well, the two like front runners in my Twitter replies were Winona Ryder or Laura Dern. And I do think, I think Laura Dern is probably the closest, Mm -hmm. although it's still not quite there. Yeah. But so I guess Wild at Heart is the perfect movie, right? Because you've got, you got both both. of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think when you watch like Inland Empire, you can kind of see a little bit of cage in Laura, but, um, or maybe it's the Wild at Heart thing. That's why he loves using them. I don't know, but. That's yeah. a really good one. Yeah, I can't really see Winona as much, but yeah. I do like it. Maybe her Tim Burton work might be. She, and she's a little unhinged in like Black Swan. Very um, true. Yes. Yeah, that's a good Winona role. That is a great Winona role. Yeah, exactly. Well, are there any other films you'd like to recommend people check out since uh, you teach the class? Like, are there any that you taught that you think uh, people should see if they want to learn more about horror or, or read more? I mean, I feel like I threw out a couple there at the yeah. end. I do think Color Out of Space is, is sort of a a less a lesser seen one that's recent. Um, okay, cool. That a lot. Um, you know, I think the films I teach are usually pretty the expected ones because it's a high school course so it's like we're gonna watch Jaws we're gonna watch Psycho (laughs) you gotta get those foundational movies in there but um oh I just saw this isn't really horror but I just saw Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder for the first time excellent film yes that's a really good movie it is that was talk about tonal shifts that's another one that like yeah tone is goes so quickly back and forth from like something kind of funny humorous weird silly to something really deadly really serious upsetting. yeah mm-hmm. um so yeah I love those tonal shifts but yeah this is a super fun chat I feel like there's so much more to say about every movie that we talked about but maybe we said maybe we said enough about each one that people <laughs> inspire other yeah thoughts and exactly well I want to thank you so much for doing this I kind of monopolized your whole afternoon but it was a delight and I learned a lot I really appreciate it no I had a blast thank you so much for having me on this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd and this is watch with Jen